Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, in a weekend when new music Dublin is busting out all over, more of which in the fullness of time. And time is very full this week, what with composer Jennifer Walsh on the hidden talents of Amazon's Halo wristband and creating contemporary dance about people with dementia and their carers. But we begin this time with microtonal music. Think of it like the rainbow, say the creators of a new microtonal Microtonal music making technology. Once you were told the rainbow was made up of red and yellow and pink and green, yada yada, and only later did you realize that sure, it's a killer song, but it was all a lie. The rainbow is a spectrum, not a handful, but a dizzyingly vast range of colors. Likewise, music, we learn about 12 equally spaced notes in Western music, 12 tones of equal temperament, but of course, pitch is also a spectrum. But working with that abundance can be tricky in a music world built around the 12-tet system. Enter Odd Sound, a collection of developers and musicians, including Limerick's Richard Aphex Twin James. Odd Sound promised that they will challenge the tyranny of a de facto tuning system with synths and software. Culture Files' Louise McMahon got a demo of what they trippingly call MTS ESP from Odd Sounds' Damon Hancock and Ollie Cash. Technically, microtonal means intervals smaller than a semitone. In practice, that's very rarely what you're interested in. You're actually interested in different tuning systems. The real underpinning truth about music is the harmonic series. This is why we find some sounds pleasing or consonant and some sounds jarring and dissonant. It's this halving, quartering, dividing the string by fractions. It's how we get the intervals that we know and love. Only the intervals we know and love are highly compromised because 12 tet has had to move the notes around in order to create a system that is isomorphic. Assuming that all of your intervals are the same in any 12 tet composition, you can transpose up and down freely and the piece of music will still have the same meaning. It's just higher and lower in pitch. The major seventh is nearly a quarter tone out, which is quite out of tune. And yet we're completely used to it. When you listen to the same piece of music played with a scale using the harmonic series, it sounds much more consonant. Can you reduce it to an octave, Ollie? You know, we're so used to things being slightly out of tune that when they're perfectly in tune, they can sound very odd. On that note, the software is more like an enabler. What we wanted to do was be able to sit in our studio and go grab these tuning files and drop them into something and just have the whole studio play in tune. And that is the role of our software. I've got some Mozart loaded in here. I've picked 12 tet as the main scale and 19 that I can morph to. So I can play this you know, simple bit and then hear what it would sound like if there was 19 notes in the octave. So yeah. 
having Rich involved really stimulated people. I think it maybe made them a little bit more responsive. I think people that maybe would have taken that email otherwise and parked it for forever, <laughs> In, indefinitely. There's absolutely tons of new Aphex twin material ahead that's going to use this technology. About a decade ago, I started listening to a lot of microtonal music and I started to play around with composition. And then we started to have these very long chats, Rich and I. One of my friends, Grant Wilson Claridge, he created a scale called the Kalundi scale, and that was 128 notes. It's a non-octave repeating scale. And Kalundi turned into kind of, a, it was like an underground tuning cult. And that's when I started to see that actually this stuff had some kind of deep cultural value on the Kalundi tour. People kept on coming up to us and saying, you know, I had this problem in my life. I listened to this music, it solved it. It's like, well, it's got to have something. All of a sudden, there were people all around me working in different tuning systems, and they were all finding it frustrating. They were all trying to work out, how do we get the notes now? It's like, I can't just get a keyboard, play what I want anymore. You know, this is what people that work in different tuning systems experience. The tools that you've got are all inadequate. When you make a piece of music, you'll probably spend a day dedicated to tuning things up. With the ability via this software to be able to control the tuning of everything in your studio, I guess the issue was, well, what do we want to do now that we have that possibility? And, you know, morphing scales was one of them. What you can see here on the screen is a sort of a set of controls, which I've got mapped to some knobs right next to me on a MIDI controller. And I can sort of control tuning in various ways with these. I can sort of add more to the list. And these different types of controls are different ways that we've thought of that we might want to creatively modify tuning. The inverse of the harmonic series is the subharmonic series, which is like a mirror inverse where tones descend downwards. I went and looked at Rich's methods for microtuning and I watched him work, I realised it was the same for him. I was like, dude, you're like one of the biggest electronic musicians on the planet and you're spending like half your life just trying to get things in tune. He's like, yeah, that's about the size of it. It's like, that's terrible. Your fans, they probably hate the fact that your output is halved just by the tools. So yeah, we set about trying to think about how you might change all of this. I talked to Rich one day and he was like, I really want this system. By the end of it, we gave him something where it was just like, whoa, didn't see this coming. Now there are entirely different compositional methods. I can send it really crazy and out of tune. And then what I can do is I can take those random pitches and I can move them back towards consonant intervals which related to the harmonic series with another of these controls. The purpose for this would be taking a piece of music and sending it wildly out of tune and then bringing it back in tune again. So to be able to do things like that in real time, you know, either as compositional devices or performance effects, via a control or some automation, introduce new notes into the scale. And I wanted to be able to sort of step through different levels of harmonic complexity like that on the fly. So the macro controls are sort of what I was just demoing. They are the controls with which you can modify tuning in real time. 
My business partner, Dave Gamble, he helped realise the technology in the first instance, what we now call MTSESP. Stands for extrasensory perception. It was a joke that I came up with. It was, you know, this idea that things would be um, psychically aware of tuning. And that was what I wanted out of the system, this kind of zero configuration. You turn these things on and then they're all in tune. And then you get on and make music. sounds Damon Hancock and Ollie Cash there on the joys of microtonal music. Louise McMahon was the reporter. For her new work, yes, but do you care? Artist Marie Brett collaborated with the dancer and choreographer Philip Connerton, as well as members of the Dementia Carers Campaign Network, to interpret the complexities of both being a carer in Ireland and engage with legislation around caring. Right now, the resulting work, combining dance and spoken word with drawing, sculpture and sound, is available free online. Culture Files' Rachel Andrews spoke to the creators. The work came about because I'm really interested in in telling stories that represent huge numbers of people's experiences. He always thinks I'm a woman. I'm never a man. But that are often quite hidden. I just silent scream. And two pairs of ears and four ears to hear. Regularly, he'd be up three or four times a night. He wakes and talks of hiding the body. My name's Marie Brett. I'm a visual artist and was the lead artist on the Yes But Do You Care project. Quite a long time ago now, I made a film with people living with a dementia. And as part of that process, I met quite, quite a few family carers. And I, a period of years later, was doing a residency with Emma. And I went to a Law Society event out of curiosity about new legislation in Ireland to do with capacity. And I got really excited and thought this might be the time to go back to carers and say, would you be interested in making a work with me about this new legislation and your experience as carers? So there's new legislation in Ireland and it's called the Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act. And it was signed into law in 2015, but but it's not yet been commenced. And what the new law does is it sets out a series of supports for adults who have difficulties in making decisions to do with with capacity. The law is looking to promote their rights and their interests. And the important thing is it forefronts everyone is presumed to be able to make a decision for themselves and have the right to do that. And it very much forefronts that person's will and preference. And so the artwork explores this this legislation from a carer's perspective, a family carer's perspective, um, and the, the potential impact for them. My name is Philip Connaughton. I'm a dance artist, choreographer, and I was working with Marie and the DCCN on this project. 
I was on a journey with my mum who's living with dementia and caring for her. And I think it set the ball rolling for me artistically um, for a whole body of work that has happened till now, dealing with uh, the journey I've been on with my mother. You know, the way art seeps into life and life seeps into art. And so it's, it's, it's been a journey that it, it's been a really exciting and creative journey. It was also triggering because when you're on a when you're on your own journey, I suppose because you're get you're dealing with it on a day to day basis, you forget about things because you're just trying to get on with it, and then suddenly looking at other people's experience and realizing there were similarities and things, it was uh, it was very interesting. My name is Helen O'Donoghue and I'm the Senior Curator and Head of Engagement and Learning Programmes at the Irish Museum of Modern Art and we're one of the stakeholders um, and supporters of this project. One of the outreach programmes that we developed was with older people and uh, came across work that was developing in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So we started to inform ourselves as a team by going to New York and sharing in their practice and then developing a programme for people living with dementia which we call a Azure programme. So the opportunity to work with the Alzheimer's Society with regard to devising the Azure tours and engage with Marie came about very naturally. I think it's huge credit that the Alzheimer's Society have the bravery to take on the openness of an arts project, to engage in a process that could go anywhere. <laughs> and indeed, when COVID came, who knew where it was going to go to? For me, um, like I live very rurally up in the middle of nowhere on the top of a hill, so I'm on the road continuously. And I didn't know if having a social arts practice, is it viable to do everything digitally but I I suppose I was excited to see and to try um, and never having worked with a creative on Zoom like in this case with Philip let alone worked with a kind of you know community of collaborators but I really wanted to give it a go and try and I think it's really worked and I didn't know whether we'd sustain the sensitivity and the intimacy that's what I was worried about um, but we've managed to do that I think um, we've managed to keep that thread and I think that's quite heartening that maybe it, there is something um, very magical about being in a space with someone but in the times we're in I feel the work wasn't weakened by not being able to do that we managed to find a mechanism to say we still have the drive and the commitment to connect together on this and to keep that depth of intimacy and that rigour but it's been tough but it does give potential for new works then so he dreamt his brother's leg had been chopped off and his sister had got in the car. We sat in our pyjamas and drove around in our car for hours looking for his dead brother's leg. It, it opens up a work to a whole different kind of audience and, and a whole different kind of potential. I think the ideal scenario would be the two tandem, hand in hand, so there's that viscerality of that space and time. You can you can feel and hear Philip's breath. You can smell those sticks, that sort. Um, but then after that, for there to be um, you know, a documentary stream that allows a bigger, wider audience, because inevitably people say, did you see this and did you think that? And it allows a kind of referral afterwards. So I think both would be something I'd really be interested to think about for the future.
Marie Brett there, ending that report from Rachel Andrews, and you can see the video at yesbutdoyoucare.ie. The helpline for the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland is 1-800-341-341. Now to this weekend's new music happenings in Dublin. It may not have been blessed with the greatest of luck in recent years, but no wind, no snow, no global pandemic is going to stop New Music Dublin 2021. The annual celebration of living composers and musicians has moved online for a long weekend of performances and premieres. Among those getting music performed and streamed is Lara Gallagher, a Berlin-based Irish improvising musician and composer whose new work has been commissioned by Crash Ensemble. Phoenicia has been written for the unique personalities of the Crash Ensemble, but also for a live on-stage painter. Lara Gallagher talked to Culturefile from her home in Berlin about the sounds of free improvisation, but also its colours. Total free improvisation is actually something that's, I mean, nearly impossible to achieve, I, I would argue. There's always kind of a conscious element to what you're playing. You sort of, as a musician, know that this is something that I've played before or this is something that I I can play, so therefore you kind of go back to these bits of music that you play or that you're comfortable playing when potentially that's, like, restricting you and it's not letting you actually explore what you're really feeling in a moment. That's something that is really interesting when you're within an ensemble that is all improvising because you're sort of all trying to really access the subconscious and trying to really engage with the piece on a level that's, you know, it's your own individual version of this piece. But that can sometimes be quite difficult when there are multiple performers in an ensemble and you kind of have the influence of other people but that's sort of what I'm trying to exaggerate a little bit in this piece as well is that this constant kind of hammering home of an idea of you know all of these other people are all doing their own individual thing and they're all influencing each other I definitely do think about the personalities when I'm writing Crash Ensemble are such a, an individualist ensemble. Let's say I was writing the, the string section. I was really looking into like, okay, well, yeah, Kate is playing the cello and I would, you know, I'd, I'd love if this was played this way or if she, she might feel like this or da, da 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 And it definitely did influence how I wrote the different melodies or how I even wrote the score or the notes, like the individual notes for each of the players, like within their part. So this is a mock-up of the piece as it is at the moment. Unfortunately, I haven't heard it in person yet, so this is what I'm working with currently. I really like kind of toying between that dialogue of the visual and the auditory I think they enhance each other really well and when you have these two senses working at the same time 
seeing things and hearing things all at the same time and it's this constant kind of performance it doesn't just stand alone as a musical piece that you can listen to anywhere it has to kind of be then it's it's brought into sort of the theatrical zone I suppose you experience it you listen to it you see the performers there you can see everything that's happening all around it, and that's all part of the experience rather than it just being kind of the score and the piece or the recording of the piece. Phoenicia is the name of, of a kind of a fibre of what purple used to be um, when they originally found purple. It's basically, it's it's a name that was given to the snails that produce this purple dye. So it's all about kind of red and blue and purple and those mixtures, just as like they're two very primary colours, obviously. And I wanted to see how I could possibly elicit different responses from these two colours. Big, boisterous blue. Movement one is the is the blue movement. Melancholic, void of fire. The entire score is based on everything there is to do with blue. Something of an ecstatic accident produced by void and fire. So these are all kind of sections from the blue movement. Playing as if with an axe. I'm very interested in different forms of notation or different types of notation. I was quite interested in kind of finding a kind of a notation for the Crash Ensemble where they could read traditional classical music notation, etc., but with elements of graphic notation on top of that. The score is pretty much traditionally written, but on top of it is layers of paint and different textures and different colours, and it's different for each player. So each player has their own specific score, their own graphic version of this score that they are playing, and it's entirely them that are playing that. So their version of, let's say, the colour blue is coming out through them, but that means that each member of the ensemble has their own unique way of of playing whatever that is to them so I wanted to try and see if I could use these visual elements as a score in this case to kind of elicit like a response that maybe kind of yeah is, is rooted more in this kind of like free improvisation like really like trying to look at a color and see if you can translate it into your body and then into sound There is actually another visual element in this piece as well. There'll be a live painter on stage with the ensemble. The painter is actually my sister, Elena. She's a fine artist and um, she does a lot of work with kind of acrylics and oils and canvases and paint. There is no score for the painter. I, I wanted to kind of leave that as a free element because I really want the relationship between the two or the dialogue between the two to be really dependent on kind of what the ensemble and the painter are feeling in the moment I really would like them to let go and really listen out for kind of all of those elements and see whether or not they are really being affected by like different colours or different viewings of colours Yeah I'm going to unfortunately be stuck in Germany but I will be watching it online from here on my laptop. It would be a shame if this was its own e-viewing because I think as something that would be really cool to see in person and if you were really experiencing this dialogue between the painters and an ensemble and it's a big ensemble like Crash it would be I just I think it would be a shame not to not to let others potentially see it in person or not to let me see it in person anyway. (laughs) 
Lara Gallagher there, and you can join Lara watching the live stream of that Crash Ensemble performance, but only if you're getting slightly ahead of the posse by listening to this Culture File weekly podcast before it's live broadcast on Saturday Tea Time, which is an actual thing if you subscribe. For everybody else, New Music Dublin's events run through to Monday 26th, and all the details are on newmusicdublin.ie. And finally, this time... I bet your tone of voice analysis is really good, and you're really good at spotting sarcasm. That's possibly because you are a human, and humans, that's kind of their thing. But what happens when we pass the job over, as we've begun to do, to machines? In her latest look at humans and the things that are not humans, things no things, artist and composer Jennifer Walsh sparks up an Amazon halo. A few months ago, Amazon released a new fitness tracker called Halo. It's a band you wear on your wrists, one of those understated non-status status symbols which quietly screams health, self-care, the monetization of deeply personal data. The market is crowded with fitness trackers which log activity, heart rate, sleep, etc. And Halo does all of that, as would be expected. But it also comes with a function which sets it apart from the Apple Watches and Fitbits out there. Each Halo is equipped with a tiny microphone which is switched on 24 hours a day, listening to you talk so it can use AI to carry out tone of voice analysis. Open up the Halo interface on your phone and it will tell you that at 10.13am your voice sounded annoyed, dismissive and irritated, but by 4.24pm you were interested, curious and sceptical. Amazon says the purpose of this functionality is to maintain relationship health because... Health isn't just physical, social well-being is important too. Reviews for the Halo's tone of voice analysis are mixed. The word creepy is used with incredible frequency. Parents report feeling judged for not sounding positive enough in front of their children and inevitably the Halo doesn't handle irony or sarcasm very well. But there is also interest from people who have problems reading vocal tone, excited that perhaps this is the beginning of a technology which will help them navigate social situations more easily. Around the same time the Halo was released, researchers at MIT announced they had trained an AI to be able to diagnose coronavirus simply by listening to recordings of people coughing. Now, these weren't high-tech recordings. Participants in the study recorded themselves coughing on their phones and laptops and sent the researchers the files, along with logs about any symptoms they had. The researchers' network was able to take this data and predict asymptomatic coronavirus with 100% accuracy. Consider the technological achievement. An AI listening to the coughs of people with no symptoms and identifying a sonic signature which indicated that these people were infected with COVID. There are things you might not know about yourself, whether you sound cranky or tired or are 
asymptomatically infected with the coronavirus. AI, non-human, non-embodied intelligence, can figure some of these things out for us with an increasingly high degree of accuracy. We're moving into a future full of new ways of knowing ourselves in collaboration with machines. Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things and you can find that series so far and plenty more if you subscribe to the Culture File podcast on places like Spotify. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more Tattletale Tusis come Monday at 6.10pm in Classic Drive. Till then, bye now.